Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. We're here in the studio with Malabama. Hi, everybody. And Professor Sean, cue the music. (laughs) Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. What it is, y'all. Welcome back to (laughs) (laughs) Home. I love it. All right, so TK, you were in Pennsylvania and Texas talking to some kids about what it means to live a meaningful life with less. Tell us a bit about that. Man, such an awesome time. Shout out to my people higher up Texas. I went to Dickinson High School in Dickinson, Texas. Uh, Shout out to Hillary, one of our Patreon supporters. And what they do is, is they focus on helping teens become adults and helping them cope with the challenging aspects of life. Mm. A lot of people under-resourced, under-supported, dealing with all different types of challenges. How to honestly face those challenges without blaming yourself for all the hard stuff you went through, but how do you exercise some bit of agency to to work within the context of what life has dealt you to make your life better. And I had a chance to talk with the students about creativity, about leadership, leadership not being a position, but leadership being a state of mind, about the willingness to exercise influence wherever you are, whoever you are. And we just had a really awesome time. A lot of high school students, I think I talked about over 120 high school students and um, their questions were amazing. Their spirit was amazing. And we were able to have some vulnerable conversations about fears, about challenges, dreams, and so on. And um, it was just a great connection. And I'm looking forward to going back some time in the future and, and, and building on the foundation that we laid. That's awesome, man. That yeah. is beautiful. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. If you uh, want to bring TK out to your middle school or high school or college podcast at theminimalists.com, feel free to, uh, to reach out. He'd be happy to join you if uh, the opportunity fits. By the way, we got the rest of our team here in the studio right now. Coming up today, on this maximal edition of the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're joined by a very special guest. We're going to be talking about perfectionism and so much more. If you have a question or comment for our show, you can give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo, podcast at theminimalists.com. Our first question today is from YouTube. Cymbeline asks, my perfectionism gets in the way of my projects at work. Even with 20 years of experience and a PhD, I agonize, delay, and self-sabotage. I'm perfectly qualified to do my job. So why is it so hard for me to sit down and do the work? Mm. Well, we're joined in the studio today by Catherine Morgan Schaffler. She's the author of this new book, if you're watching the video version of the podcast. It is called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. Now... Catherine, before we answer this question directly, I want to say I first misread the title, and this is my own imperfections, <laughs> my own perfectionism. I read it as the perfectionist guide to losing everything. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it a Freudian slip, mm. sort of, because 
to a perfectionist, control is all that I have and yeah. I need more of it. And I would be satisfied mm. if only mm. I could get more control. Mm -hmm. If I had more dominion over my domain, mm -hmm. I'd be happier. <laughs> I'd be more complete. It's like psychological consumerism mm. yes. in a way. I'm going to complete myself if I just had more control. And of course, what happens? Mm. I get some control and I just need more. It becomes this unquenchable thirst. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how you get stuck in the game because there's intermittent reward. And when you think about how you cannot control so much, and I would say most things in life, you can control some stuff mm. some of the time. And when you control something and manipulate in such a way that you get the outcome you want, it's like ding, ding, ding. And then you mm. want to play more and get to the next level and do all this stuff. And of course, to your point, it's all an illusion. Mm. And the subtitle of the book, A Path to Peace and Power, is about control is just this generic cardboard cutout version of power. Yes. Mm. We don't actually want control. What we want is power. And power is always the upgrade. It's always available to everybody. It's coming from within yourself. It doesn't need to be externally sourced. Whereas control is like the opposite in so many ways. But it's like lust and love. They look so similar. Mm. And it's really hard to tell the difference. Mm. Wait, please tell I got to hear her definition of power. Like what is power? <laughs> power is understanding the immutability of your worth. Ooh. That's how I define power. People who are powerful know that there is not one thing that you can do or not do that would change the fact that all the time, even when you're sleeping, even when you are completely messing up whatever you're trying to do, you are still worthy of all the love, joy, connection, freedom, and dignity that like if you imagine the most accomplished ideal version of yourself, that person and you right now are equally worthy of those things. Mm. Perfectionism or perfection is maybe a better way to look at this is sort of the default state of the universe. And we try to attain it thinking that I can become more perfect. Yeah. That's even in the founding documents of this country, like yeah. a more perfect union mm. as though I can become perfect and then I can then make it more perfect. Perfection isn't attained, it is uncovered in a way by understanding the, the acceptance thing you were talking about. Now, mm -hmm. Catherine, you're, you're a psychotherapist, and in the book, you talk about the five types of perfectionists. And I thought this was ideal to answer uh, Cymbeline's question here, because she is a perfectionist at work. And she says, even I have 20 years of experience. I have mm -hmm. a PhD, but I still agonize every day. I delay, I self-sabotage. Mm -hmm. What type of perfectionist is this? Okay, well, here's the thing, just to lay the lay of the land, is that something that bothers me and has always bothered me about addressing perfectionism and perfectionists is that the general message in the self-help slash personal development world is like, just don't be a perfectionist. Just mm. be less mm. of a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. like, don't sweat the small stuff and lower your standards a little bit. And that 
doesn't work. It's like telling someone who's really pissed off to calm down. It makes <laughs> it works every time. It makes, <laughs> I am calm. <laughs> Relax. Oh shoot. Right. And it it not only doesn't work, but it actually makes perfectionists feel really isolated because it's immediately like, oh, you don't get it. I can't just shut this off. Mm. Right. So this question, the thing I'm hearing before I hear anything else, it's like, I can't turn this off. I haven't been able to turn this off for 20 years, Mm. probably before 20 years. And so this book is about completely flipping the way that we think about perfectionism and perfectionists and first understanding that if you're a perfectionist, that's that's a big core part of your identity. Mm. It's like being a romantic or being an activist. It's not something you can necessarily edit out of yourself. And so the book takes an integration approach instead of the eradication approach, Mm. which is like, just don't be a perfectionist. Mm. Um, In the same way that romantics can have a lot of problems if they don't have boundaries around the way they love or their impulsivity or whatever else is going on. That doesn't mean that being a romantic is unhealthy. It just means you need to be really self-aware, understand your triggers, like recognize some patterns, how you want to switch them up, the patterns that you want to keep and maintain. And perfectionism, I see as the same thing. It's Mm. not a bad thing. You don't have to stop being a perfectionist to be healthy. You just have to understand where it can help you and where it can hurt you. Mm. Because it's a very powerful force, perfectionism. It's a force I think is present in everybody But perfectionists are people who feel that impulse to actively chase the ideal more often than not. They Mm. feel it in a really reliable, consistent, patterned way. And so, Mm. you know, long story short, it's not perfectionism that is your problem. It's how you respond to it. And it sounds like this caller is responding to it with a lot of punishment. And punishment... Mm is not powerful. It is terrible, toxic. There's no healthy version of it. Punishment will just take you down. Mm. It's funny how punishment sometimes like it makes us feel better about our imperfections. Well, at least I feel guilty about it and I'm punishing myself. Yeah. But I love how you're, um, you're, you're relieving people of the guilt of being a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to your point, Josh, it's, the the first person to bring up perfectionism in psychological literature was this guy, Dr. Alfred Adler, who everybody knows because this is the guy who coined the term inferiority complex. And he was a socialist and his ideas didn't get a lot of traction for a lot of reasons, but mostly because they didn't fit into the mold at the time, which was way back in the day, like Freud day, like 1910s. And he said, that perfectionism is the eternal melody we all hear. And because he believed like, people are good inside. And so if you leave people to their own devices, that striving and pushing towards the ideal that perfectionists actively feel um, is because we all want to be more connected. And Adler saw all neuroses as an absence of connection. And he said, if everybody was clean, clothed, safe, fed, and free, there would be no perfectionism because we would have the ideal already. But because there's not, perfectionism is always going to be here. And that's where the whole inferiority complex comes in. Like we know at all times, we're not as connected. We're not taking care of each other. We're not. And we feel that. And there's then a compensatory drive to fix that. 
And if that compensatory drive is kind of more reactive than responsive, it ends up being unhealthy because you try to get like the quick fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's when perfect maladaptive perfectionism is is the research term for unhealthy perfectionism. And adaptive perfectionism is when you use perfectionism to help you and hurt to help you and heal you. Mm. It sounds to me like what Adler was saying is sort of the opposite of what Dostoevsky talks about when he mm-hmm. says, like, if ev- and this thing is from Notes in the Underground, uh, he's talking about how if everyone got everything that they wanted, that they became perfect. They would find a way to sabotage that in order right. to create an imperfection because we're all, it's almost as though we are these problem-solving creatures. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about perfectionism that says, I need something to fix. I'm going around with a solution in yeah. search of a problem. Yeah, mm. well, you're touching on that human aspect of it. And something that surprised me when I was researching for this book and thinking about my clients is that perfectionism is compulsive. Like this person who cannot stop doing it, it is compulsive. And compulsivity is often a marker for dysfunction. If you can't control it, then something's wrong. But then I started thinking about other stuff that's compulsive, like the need to tell stories or to touch or kiss or talk even. And that it's actually not a sign of health if we just sit here and are like templates of what a human being is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And we never kind of let the, I guess it's a little bit of what I would call activation anxiety to like touch the thing or Mm. talk to the person or, you know, it's like sitting in this quiet, quote unquote, meditative state all the time. I think that's a little bit overrated, frankly. Mm. Yeah. So let me ask you, someone who has like an unhealthy level of perfectionism in their life, would, would you like recommend for them to like, I don't know, first look at kind of the connection that they have in their lives? Is that a good place to start? Yeah. I mean, a really good place to start is understanding that all people who consider themselves perfectionists are both healthy and unhealthy perfectionists. Mm. So we talk about health and mental health in particular as this kind of like flag that you can catch and then plant and you're like, I'm healthy now. (laughs) And that is not how it works. And mental health is so much more fluid and so much more context dependent than we think of it as. And the reason that we think of it that way is because mental health right now is organized in these categorical models of like, I'm depressed Mm -hmm. or I'm not depressed. I'm, you know, suffering from bipolar disorder. I'm not. And everything actually operates on a continuum. Mm, mm. And we're all like sometimes a little bit of a narcissist or a little bit depressed-ish. I'm like, I like a lot of gray language in mental health, but that doesn't help when you need the label to help you understand, like this is gonna show up in this way in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And here's how to understand it and plan for it and kind of manage it. And in that way, labels are healthy. But in another way, they're not because when someone is in like a healthy space, I think they feel like, well, nothing can happen to me now or I'm not at risk of like slipping because I'm doing all the healthy stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Labels are a good, um, I don't know, guide, Mm -hmm. but I think it can be detrimental to use those labels to define who we are as a person. A hundred percent. And to get to your question, the two things you want to see if you really want to test 
where your perfectionism is at in terms of whether it's in a healthy or unhealthy space is like, how are you striving and why are you striving? Mm -hmm. And so if the how is like you're striving in a way that feels good and energizing and connective for you, then that's adaptive perfectionism. If you're striving in a way where you're just burning yourself out and you're, you're frustrating yourself and pissing yourself off and all that stuff, that's more maladaptive. Mm. And the why are you striving is like, are you striving because you think you're going to get this thing, X amount of listeners, X amount of money, X amount on number on the scale, and that's going to certify your belonging somewhere to some club or some group, or that's going to make you feel worthy of all the stuff we talked about at the top of the conversation? Or are you, are you striving because you love to? Mm-hmm. And mm. it makes you feel like more of who you are. Mm. And you're not so attached to the outcome. You're obsessed with the process. And if you're striving for those reasons, then that's healthy perfectionism. Yeah, it's almost like we, yeah. we're abutting the limitations of the English language here, right? Mm-hmm. Because what we're talking about is like striving versus, you know, someone might call that a chase. Yeah. Someone else might call it devotion to something, right? Yeah. And it's the the devotion side I see as being the sort of healthy obsession about something. Mm-hmm. The striving for a particular outcome or chasing an outcome is a surefire path to misery. Yeah. Because what happens is you get it and then you're happy for about three seconds. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, wow, look at me. We were just talking about this this morning, Mal, when we were talking about pride and how mm-hmm. Hale Wodeskin talks about how pride is essentially the fear of not being able to do something again, mm. which I thought was a really interesting mm. framing yeah. because here's the thing. Like if I, we were nominated for an Emmy a few years ago and it'd be easy to feel pride for that at first, but then you, what's the pride saying? Oh, oh, this is rare. Mm. I might not be able to do this again. Or the very first time I tied my shoe, I felt pride around that. I was a, a late shoe tire. I didn't get to, <laughs> I was like seven or eight years old. And uh, so I felt a lot of pride, but imagine if I walked into this studio today and I was like, you're not going to believe this, Catherine. I was able to tie my shoe all by myself this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't feel that way because there's no scarcity around. There's no Mm. fear that I won't be able to Mm. do that again. I do want to touch on the five types of perfectionists in a moment, but let's tune in to Instagram, Malabama. We got a question from Rose. I'm cohabitating with someone who isn't a minimalist, and I need help on developing some strategies to maintain our common spaces. I know it isn't reasonable to hold them to my high standards, but I don't want to play maid to them either. We've tried several different systems to keep clutter at bay, but it never seems to last for long. What are some tools to help me keep the peace and keep things organized? So, Catherine, I'm interested in this question because I I do suffer from perfectionism to the point where it becomes the opposite of productive. It becomes neurotic. I neurose over it and it becomes a type of prison. And in your book, what you talk about is having boundaries around Mm -hmm. the perfectionism Mm -hmm. because I think we were talking about this earlier to some extent, but the chase isn't going to bring happiness. And so I think the same thing is true with decluttering. Decluttering is not going to bring you peace. It's going to set up the environment in which... You've removed the chaos, and mm-hmm. so you can be peaceful. But let's be frank about this. It's also possible to be at peace within a room, a warehouse full of clutter, right. even. Right. And so psychologically, what is going on here when you're cohabitating with someone? And of course, 
all of my st- this is a George Carlin bit basically like <laughs> all of my stuff is stuff and all of your stuff is crap and <laughs> and what we're doing is simply projecting our own image of the world onto someone else. You should yeah. be this way. You yeah. should behave this way. Uh, you should pacify me. You should think the same way that I do. And mm-hmm. no wonder uh, Rose feels miserable right now mm-hmm. because it's heaping those expectations onto someone else. And by the way, I totally get it. The, I have compassion for Rose because this question uh, it resonates with me. I have a family, a wife and a daughter. And our house would be far more Spartanist if it was mm-hmm. up to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we still have a relatively minimalist home, uh, as you can see from the, we do minimalist home tours over on Patreon. And yet it's still not exactly the way I would like it to be. Yeah. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm laughing because it's such a universal struggle of, and particularly in this example of living with somebody and, you know, we're so often drawn towards people who are the opposite attracts thing. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a minimalist, it is interesting that I think a lot of people are drawn to someone who is the opposite in some way. And I think really breaking that down into two parts. One is if you can explain the undercurrent of your preferences and your perfectionistic tendencies to someone, that's going to get you a lot more mileage than saying, I really need the kitchen counter to be clear, okay? Mm. Just clear it. You know I want it to be clear. Why do you leave this junk here every night? If you can say, when the kitchen counter is clear, my mind is more clear. I remember more stuff about what I value. And I have, it's like, you know, taking a walk for me. And when you put stuff on the kitchen counter, it takes that stuff away from me. Or when you, you know, leave your clothes all over the floor, it's like you're interrupting me. Mm. So if you can kind of not make it about, there's an old adage in therapy of it's never about what it's about. Right. It's not about the stuff in the house. It's about your access to your own feelings and your sense that your partner doesn't care about that. Mm. And if you can address that, then you're probably going to see a little more motivation on the side of your partner to be like, oh, I don't want to interrupt her. Let me clear this away. And then the second thing is, and I talk about these six different types of support to help you understand like which bucket you need to pick up and pour over your life. Because sometimes it's like, I need so much help. I don't, I'm so stressed. I'm overwhelmed. And just giving yourself the language of like, look, it's not that you need so much help. It's that you need financial support right now. Mm. You know what to do. You know how to do it. You've got a team around you. You just need funds. And in this case, this might be a tangible support thing, which is like having a house cleaner every week. Or something like that, which people sometimes don't give themselves because they underestimate how powerful that can be. And it's also, if you and your partner are paying for a house cleaner and investing, then you're less likely to keep, you know, it's more of an intentional mission of like, this house want needs to be this way mm-hmm. for a reason. And so I would say those two things are good starting points to the yeah. convo. And sometimes acting on starting points like that, like getting someone to help with the cleaning, we we have this inner resistance that says, oh, but that would be pathetic of me to bring someone from the outside to do what I am perfectly able to do. And it's letting that expectation of ourselves go and saying, no, it's never pathetic of me mm-hmm. to get the help that I need, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to live in L.A., 
And when I lived here, I really had it in my head that if it was in my early 20s, that if I asked for help for for anything from anybody, I like whatever I achieved didn't count. Mm-hmm. I was cheating. I was cheating. So don't ask for help because then it doesn't even count if you get it. It's not even a feel good. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went through this abrupt breakup when I was 24. And the guy I was dating was such a great guy. And like we were both sharing the rent and he would have been very happy to like stay on the couch for a while or wh- whatever. But I was like, I'm going to be out of this house tonight with me and my dog. Mm. I looked on Craigslist (laughs) for the first available apartment that night. And I just moved all my stuff into this apartment that was, I tell this story in the book, owned by this guy named Dax. Okay. And Dax, I want everybody to know, had a license plate that said Dax to see. (laughs) (laughs) this is like red flags waving billowing in the air and i did not care because i was like i'm doing this by myself i could have asked 50 billion friends to just crash at their place for a little while whatever it was and then i lived there for a month and it was like i'm laughing about it now but dax and his friend who also lived there were so sketchy Mm. and like did a lot of drugs and drank a lot of alcohol and like partied all night long. And I just felt so much pride to your point of like, I'm doing it by myself, Mm. even though I feel unsafe, even though I feel like this is not a good choice, but I'm, I'm not asking for help. And it took me so long to just get to this place where it's like, not only is asking for help always the move, it's like the, the smartest and strongest people are the ones who ask for help. If you look at successful people, they have personal assistance, they have this, they have that. Like mm-hmm. they've streamlined their life so that they have as much help in as many areas as possible. So it's a hard thing to take in. But once you take it in, it just allows you to have so much more access to yourself. And this comes back to, back to your point about worthiness, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I am worthy of this, even if I haven't suffered for it. Yeah, yeah. the suffering is such a, big one because it's like I suffered I'm miserable see how responsible I am Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm worthy because I'm suffering right I want to circle back to one thing real quick you you mentioned the the house cleaner I have a separate problem my perfectionism I'm very obsessive I OCD and and um to a certain extent it becomes a superpower and you write about this in the book it I, that rigidness, that structure has allowed me to create things that I don't think I could have created otherwise. The problem is when it becomes too rigid. And sometimes it's like when there are too many boundaries, mm-hmm. that is a type of non-boundary in a way because it mm-hmm. it restricts your freedom. And the opposite is also true. With no boundaries, you have no freedom Yeah, because you don't have a place in which to operate. You don't know what the rules are to your own life. I noticed... Um, when I hired a house cleaner once, mm-hmm. they came over and she did an awesome, awesome job. In fact, she used to clean the studio here floor. And when she came to my house and really she was just a disorganizing consultant <laughs> because like <laughs> my shelves look like, I mean, like you go to the laundry cabinet and like everything is lined up like a retail store would be. Every, every label is facing outward and 
And she just came over, and I swear she came in and just did this, Ryan. She would just like turn the label just slightly and set it back down. And she said, I'll move the Windex in front of the counter cleaner. And it's like, no, what are you doing? This feels so out of control. But the truth is there's no... That's merely a story I'm telling myself. Mm. Mm. And I wanted to circle back because in the book, you talk about the five types of perfectionists. Which which type am I? So that would be a classic perfectionist. No. So classic perfectionists are what we most think of when we think of per- perfectionists. Someone who might be a little rigid sometimes uh-huh. and likes their stuff the way they like their stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're highly reliable people. So mm. all kind, all these types of perfectionism um, have their advantages and have their liabilities. Mm. And classic perfectionists on the pro side are so structured. They do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it in the way they said they would do it, Mm. right? And so they're very disciplined in that way. On the con side, sometimes their style of perfectionism doesn't lend itself to accepting help Mm. because it's like, well, if I'm the the classic perfectionist line in their heads is like, if you want something done well, do it yourself. Yes. Mm. And then it's like, but you can't do all the things yourself. It's so a subtitle it's, to my memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Put the Windex back. <laughs> and then that's the subtitle. Yeah. Um, so there's the classic perfectionist, right? There's the procrastinator perfectionist. And this perfectionist essentially wants the conditions to be perfect before they start, Mm. um, which never happens. And so on the pro side, these are really thoughtful people. These are people who can prepare. They are not impulsive, which is such a strength. Um, And they can see everything from a 360 degree angle. But on the con side, obviously, this kind of perfectionism turns into paralysis and indecision and a lot of self-loathing because you're like, why can't I just start the books, do this, do that. Mm. And the counterpart to the procrastinated perfectionist is the messy perfectionist. Mm. And these are people who are in love with starting. They are obsessed with starting. They don't want to do anything but start projects, right? They're just like, cast this huge net. I'm going to have this podcast and write this book and also be an Airbnb super host and also do this (laughs) and that, whatever. And they really hit a wall when the middle of the process like when the perfection and romanticized part of starting something starts to break down. Mm. So these are people who love like the first, second date. And then on the third date, they hear a little, there's a little bit of a glitch. And they're like, oh, I'm out. I'm done. You know, if you're not managing that kind of perfectionism. Um, And then there is the Parisian perfectionist. And this perfectionism is really interesting because it plays out interpersonally. So this is about wanting people to perfectly like you, perfectly understand you, and also wanting to perfectly like other people. Mm. And so the ideal Mm. that's being chased here is ideal connection. And these people also want to perfectly understand themselves or their God, whatever it is. So a Parisian perfectionist could be at like a regular nine to five, no upward mobility, you're not seeing their perfectionism expressed professionally necessarily or in like classic perfectionist organizational ways. It all comes through interpersonally. Mm. And then there's the intense perfectionist. And this is like what we think of the public persona of Gordon Ramsay or Steve Jobs. And intense perfectionists are really razor sharp focus on the outcome, the ending of a process being perfect. And that's a great advantage. They're effortlessly direct. 
you know, they're not trying to do anything but get the job done. And if you're not managing that perfectionism, you can get to the goal and just leave like a a trail of mm. devastation. And it's like, great, you got the thing. Every You got the goal. Everybody's going to quit next month yeah. because they're all miserable. Mm. You know, this is like, great, Christmas and everything is decorated perfectly and everybody's here and, and dinner is hot and on time. And like, do you see how disconnected everybody is at the table? Like, yeah. you know, and so all these kinds of perfectionisms can play out in positive ways, negative ways, and a lot in between. Mm. We got a question here from Facebook. Ricky has a question for us. I've wasted decades trying to do what I thought was expected of me. How do I let go of this perfect idea of who I'm supposed to be? I think this goes back to the intense perfectionist, Mm -hmm. where there's some sort of crystalline endpoint. Mm -hmm. I just want to be happy is often once. There can be a nebulous endpoint. I want to be happy. I want to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. I want to be free. I want to be fulfilled. Or it can be specific in the sense that I want a million dollars, a million followers, a million pats on the back, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. We think that we want happiness, a perpetual bliss, but not realizing that when you get that, it's actually mania. Mm -hmm. It's not what we're seeking. We think we are seeking the things that we aren't even seeking. And so when I look at Ricky's question here, hey, I've wasted decades trying to do what I thought was expected of me. How do I let go of the perfect idea of this is who I'm supposed to be? Yeah. Mm. And I feel like Ricky is speaking on behalf of humankind because we've all done that and we'll all continue to do that in ways that sneak up on us. And he's in a really or she is in a really powerful position right now Mm. because what they're recognizing is that I am behaving, that's called behavioral perfectionism, in the way that I think I'm supposed to. And it goes back to the how and why guiding questions Mm -hmm. about whether your perfectionism is healthy. And the why to his question is that so that I can be accepted by whomever is expecting these things, right? Whether it's society or their parents or their partner or whatever. And how am I doing it? I'm doing it in a way that makes me miserable, Mm. that is making me feel like I am a one-dimensional person and that I am not fully alive. And so I would, you know, just be able to take a moment and say, thank God. God, energy, the universe, however you want it, your highest self, the language is irrelevant, that you are aware of this now. Mm. You are in a place of power where you're Mm. starting to understand, oh, I deserve joy now. Not an excellent plan to be very happy later. Like in being able to have language around that and say, that is what self-worth is. And I have self-worth. If he he or she or they did not have self-worth, there would be no frustration. So the feeling Mm. of frustration and disappointment in self, and I would say despair, because that sounds like a long history, is really just coming up to inform the person that they are ready for a new way of living. Yeah. It it sounds like their self-worth comes from how other people think of them. So if they're constantly trying to live up to other people's expectations, they are essentially looking for approval with a certain group or certain person, whatever it is, um, living up to other people's expectations, like putting other people's expectations before your own yeah, is like 
this perfect recipe for discontent, I feel like. And I know it sounds kind of selfish because what I'm saying is, is like, hey, your expectations come first and live up to those. And then if you want to take on other people's expectations, great. Like, that's okay to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you're not living up to what you expect of yourself, like Mm -hmm. that is, there's always, it's always going to feel like a mess inside. Completely. And I think another great way to reframe that is you cannot show up for other people, for your community, for your kids, for you know, your friends, when you are living in that way, because it's not even you that the person is getting. Mm. It's just like actor tryouts. Mm. It's yeah. like the you where it's like, um, um, do you like this now? Do you, and we're not actually, we don't feel safe around people who aren't themselves. We feel unsure. We can't quite get a temperature, emotional temperature on them. You're not fully present. You can't be fully present and trying to control impression management. Mm. And so when we're around people who aren't fully present, we kind of back away a little bit. And when you're around someone who's present and who is allowing themselves to be their whole full self, it's like intoxicating. Mm -hmm. Like I've never met anybody like you Mm -hmm. because you haven't. Because Mm. if you let yourself really be yourself, instead of worrying about the proverbial like likes and not likes you're going to get on every comment and and career choice and your home decor or whatever mm-hmm. then you know people i think are so drawn to that because it awakens them to the presence inside themselves mm. and because you feel alive you give other people more license to feel alive and more permission to do things the way that they want to do them mm-hmm. like some people are not here to be on the same kind of path of consciousness as you are. So some people will, for their whole lives, live and die expecting you to be the kind of son that does this Mm. or the kind of partner that does that. And they're never going to change. And you're always going to disappoint them because you're never going to do it the right way because it's not ever going to feel like you and something's always going to feel missing. And the thing that's missing is your full presence. Right. And so, yeah, no, no, you well, go I was just going to say, like, yeah. so when you don't accept yourself, then you look for external validation mm-hmm. to be accepted. But mm-hmm. what I hear you saying is, is like, until you accept yourself, you could get all the external validation that you want, but it's got to, it's got to come from you first. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine if I gave you the power, Catherine, to make me feel worthy or not. Yeah. It's like, oh, does Catherine like mm. me? Does she accept me? And I'm like tweeting her. Oh, she responded to my tweet. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. Yeah. But then but, you always need more of that as well. Yes. And but but giving someone else that power is um, what makes you powerless. Yeah. 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 It does. Yeah. Well, and, and there's room to maybe like redirect that perfectionistic tendency, but like be perfectionist towards other people's definitions of who you should be. Right. Like if you expect something of me, your expectation isn't perfect. Right? Mm-hmm. Why should I put all the pressure on myself to be perfect? Is your definition of who I ought to be perfect? Mm-hmm. And, and so many times we, we think about other people's expectations of us and we're only thinking about their expectation, but we're not thinking about the me that they're expecting it from. And if I lose the essence of me in trying to fulfill your expectation, even if you're happy with me, I'm not even around to enjoy it mm-hmm. because I lost me a long time ago mm-hmm. trying to keep up with your imperfect definition of who I ought to be. Mm. Yeah. And something wild that happens too that we don't think about is that when you accommodate other people's expectations, you create disconnection because you're actually being really judgy. And I'll explain what I mean. Is when we think of being judgmental, we think of 
judgmental as going in one direction. Like we judge people who we say like, oh, you're being so judgmental. We think of that as you're being haughty, you're being superior. Actually being judgmental is also when you place yourself below someone Mm. and say, oh, well, this person has more Instagram followers, so they are more important than I am. And so when you chase after that person, you're judging them and creating the same disconnection you make when you, you know, look down at somebody, like looking up at somebody as better than you is the same kind of disconnect as looking down at someone as worse worse than you in some way. Mm. There are two ways to have the tallest building. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. You can build it or you can tear others down. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Our first question today is from Alexandra. My passion is writing. Um, I do love being a teacher, but it's not my real passion. And as a teacher, I find it really overwhelming trying to incorporate both um, also, I'm doing my master's um, in foreign language education, so trying to juggle writing, um, doing my master's, teaching, and teaching has a lot, um, has, you know, there's a lot of pressure right now on teachers with testing and lesson plans and grading, and there's just constant demand, and I'm just trying to um, incorporate everything so then I don't feel depleted at the end of the day and how to... Basically, my question is, how can I juggle all three? Because many times I try and I just feel dissatisfied because I can never fully commit to my passion of writing because of all the distractions with doing my master's and teaching at the same time. Mm. Catherine, is this the... Messy Messy. perfectionist. Yes. Yeah, it could be, you know, unmanaged messy perfectionism. And I want to, I want to point out that, you know, it's very possible that in six months, this person calls back really excited because they can still do three things. And yet they have boundaries around the stuff that's, that they're hemorrhaging energy doing. Mm. There's lots of different ways this can turn out. You might not be able to do all three things, right? You might have to, you, you cannot live in all the cities. You cannot (laughs) marry all the people. (laughs) You cannot have all the careers. Mm. So this may be an issue of you need to choose and understand that if you choose everything, you're committing to nothing. Mm. And if you choose and it's still really, really hard, I think instead of asking, how can I do this one thing better? A more useful question is, what can I subtract from my life? And I I talk about the tool of energy management over time management, right? So they're not mutually exclusive, but I think when we all are busy and stressed and overwhelmed and trying to do the 50 million things, which is the messy perfectionist's MO, we're like, how can I manage my time better? And I want people to understand that it's not time that is your problem, it's energy. And so it's not that yesterday you could not find 15 minutes to do a lesson plan. It's that when the 15 minutes appeared, you were so burnt out that you're like, ugh, mm. I just want to scroll Instagram. I mm. can't even do this. And when you watch TV for an hour, like mindless, because you just feel too depleted. And when you manage your energy, what you're doing is creating a situation in which you can bring premium quality energy 
to what you're doing. And one hour of premium quality energy will serve you better than 10 hours approaching a task rushed, resentful, tired, all that stuff. And so, you know, one of the ways to do that is to examine and just ask yourself, what am I doing that is hemorrhaging my energy? Maybe it's the way that you're eating or a sleep habit or something like that. And another way is to ask yourself, like, how can I be more productive? Not in the like productivity equals task completion, but in the, guess what? It's really productive to take a walk because it clears your energy and it creates a, a space so that when you get home, you feel more able to connect with people you love. That gives you more energy. And it's really productive to you know do all these things that we don't think of as traditional productivity. But when you think of anything that restores or protects your energy is productive because what you want is not more time. It's premium quality energy. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, that comes from um, this life-changing article I read in Harvard Business Review by Tony Schwartz and Catherine. um, Oh God, her last name is escaping me, but it'll come back to me. I'm I'm delegating it to my unconscious. (laughs) It'll come back. Um, And it was called Manage Your Energy Over Your Time. Yeah, that's incredible. Catherine McCarthy, I just found the article. Catherine McCarthy, yes, thank you. And we often optimize for the best possible outcome or Mm -hmm. practical result. And you're saying optimize for energy. Yeah. Because once you have that result, even if it's perfect, where do you go from there if you have no energy left? Mm -hmm. But if you optimize for energy, you get to stay in the game. This is that whole idea of life as an infinite game where we're playing in such a way that we're allowed to continue playing. Right. Mm. Shout out to Simon Sinek. (laughs) He's also on my imprint and has influenced so much of of my work. And he wrote that book, The Infinite Game. Shout out to James Kars, who uh, (laughs) Finite Infinite Games, Simon Sinek took that and like popularized it, took it to the the next level. Mm -hmm. But uh, James P. Kars, it's like a really like, it's like an old school book, like Mm. this little black cover. Mm -hmm. Um, And and speaking of awesome subtitles, because you got one of the best, A Path to Peace and Power, the subtitle to that one is called uh, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. Oh, let me repeat that that back in my mind 10 times. (laughs) You take those two books next to each other, you got yourself a life. Yeah, that's awesome. You you know, you said something, Catherine, about um, her having to choose here. Mm -hmm. And often, like, it's easy to say, well, you got to choose one. Yeah. Um, much more difficult to actually choose one and kind of let some of the others go. So, I mean, if I was in her situation, I would personally like look at the why, like what is driving me for each of these things? Yeah. Because she, she said she doesn't like teaching all that much, mm-hmm. but she's getting her master's degree in teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's really passionate about writing, um, but she also has to pay the bills and I get that. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, what I see here is like money being in the driver's seat for one of them. And I could be way off here, but like... No, I don't think you are. And I think, yeah, there are practical considerations for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what a lot of people do when they don't feel powerful is they double down on superficial control. And the superficial control here is I might not be powerful enough to get what I want. So let me manufacture a guaranteed outcome, Mm. which is I can get my master's in teaching and maybe get a 7% raise. And it's like... Listen, if you're in touch with your power, you get 30,000 feet in the air and you see that that strategy is is just, even if you get the 7% raise, 
that's not going to make you feel, again, not happy or not after dopamine kicks, but really fulfilled. And and this is about showing up as your full self. Mm -hmm. And so really taking that feedback that your mind and body is giving you of, I don't like this. This is burning me out. You know, you you hearing that feedback and responding to it with like, how do I hack my life <laughs> is not useful. It's it's a signal of distrust within yourself. If you're feeling that and thinking that there's a reason and instead of looking at yourself with suspicion and saying like, why can't I get it together? Am I ever going to get it together? Look at yourself with trust and say, huh, there must be something you need that you're not getting. Mm. There must be something you're after that doesn't matter to you. Yeah. And that's why this is such an energy drain. It's like trying to like food you don't like or like music you don't like. There's no hack to that. That's just not you. Yeah. The, the word power came up again. Yeah. Like her getting in touch with her with her power. So it's interesting because I, I don't know the answer to this, but it seems like power can be uh, debilitating or the, the, the wanting of power, but getting in touch with your power can also be like a positive driving force. Yeah. Is well, there... I think if power feels elusive to you and feels like other people have power and I don't have power, so I need to do all these things so that I can finally get power, mm. is, is just making like a pinata out of power. You're just trying to like <laughs> whack at something, right? Mm. And that goes back to this sense that you're not worthy of pe being powerful now. Mm. But once you achieve all this stuff, then you'll be worthy of feeling that way. And that's not the, the case. And I have a lot of empathy for this confusion between control and power because it's something I feel a lot. And I think it's something a lot of people feel a lot. And it's like, we're not choosing control because we're not conscious enough or we're foolish. We're choosing control because it feels like when you don't feel powerful, control feels like the responsible thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like you don't feel like you have another choice if you don't feel powerful. What are you going to do? Did you take your hands off the wheel and, and then what happens? And that feels really threatening. It's very psychologically threatening to think about the fact that control doesn't work. Mm. So if, if, you're, if you're feeling that, right, like you, you're able to look at your life and see that I'm, I'm trying to control a whole bunch of things I don't even really love as a way to compensate for what I'm now ready to acknowledge, that I feel powerless. What's, what's the first step out of that? I think an appreciation for your level of awareness and like your tolerance for that shitty, terrible feeling of, I don't like my life right now. Mm. It takes a lot to not numb out to that. And there are a thousand and one options and I had done 999 of them <laughs> to numb yourself out to the fact that my reality is painful. I have abandoned myself in some way. This isn't what I wanted it to be. This isn't looking the way I wanted it to look. And now I have to do something about it. Mm. And that point of no return knowing where you can't unknow the thing, no matter how much you try to self-sabotage yourself, feels like a thorn in your brain. That's actually like an expansion of your heart and mind being like, you're done. You're ready for the next phase. And so I think the first step is just an appreciation of like, you're not stuck. You're ready. And you can't be ready without understanding that this other way is no longer working for you. Mm. Let's do one more question Man. here. Come, with, so come on. <laughs> with <Yeah>. Catherine. <laughs> we got a question from Toronto, Canada. 
This is Prab Noor calling from Toronto. I recently turned 20 on my first day back on campus. Um, I was m nervous most of the time because I understood that the semester ahead was going to be heavy in terms of work. So is there a way to have a class load that makes room for your hobbies? I'm currently enrolled in a four-year interior design degree program, bachelor's. So if there isn't an option for part-time studies, what can full-time students do in creating a balance with their hobbies and school? Catherine, mm -hmm. we sometimes talk about balance. You actually talk about balance in your book mm -hmm. as well. And the thing that I've come to understand is balance is the default state. And we only go seeking balance when things have become out of balance. There's mm. never like a really bored person who's in a monastery and they're meditating all day and they're saying, how do I find more balance? Yeah. What happens is we heap on a bunch of obligations or expectations from other people. And then of course, we feel out of balance. And it is only when we feel out of balance mm -hmm. that we then mm. seek balance. A balanced person is never actually seeking the balance that they have, though. It's like riding a bike. Mm -hmm. If you start riding a bike, at first you might be off balance, but you're not trying to even find balance there. You're trying to ride the bike. And once you've started riding the bike, you're still not seeking balance. You just happen to be balanced. Mm. Right. Right. I mean, balance is a tricky word because I think in the world of commercial wellness, we have created this myopic, reductive version of it, mm. where it means being good at being busy. Mm. So if you say to someone, and particularly women get this message, that, oh, she's so balanced. What you're saying is not she's hit her sweet spot of energetic equilibrium, which is what you're talking about, the, the actual core definition of balance. What you're saying is she can do a million things and not drop the ball. Look at her go. And that's not what balance is. And it sounds like this caller is trying to figure out how to be good at being busy. Mm. When I would suggest her to direct her thoughts towards the intention of this next point in her life and these next years. And, and the intention is different than a goal. And if your goal is to make honors and, you know, also be able to have gone from beginner to middle level in exactly three hobbies... And like, you can do that. But what's going to be a more powerful strategy is to say, by the end of college, I want to have been able to say that I really offered my true self in the relationship opportunities that I had, mm. whether those were friendships, mentors who you were inspired by, romantic partners, the relationship to yourself, like an intention like that, that doesn't have generic metrics that only you can say whether you did a good job on that or not is a much more powerful driving force than being able to say, I finished my scroll of a to-do list. Mm. I love your use of that word generic too, because that's precisely what we, we become when we subscribe to a notion of balance that says, I must equally distribute all of my creative energy across all activities in life. Yeah. Well, what am I biased towards? Yeah. Right. When I when I look back on my on my college years or whatever it is, what do I want to see me having spent more of my time and energy on? What's most rewarding to me? Yeah, it's so wild that this question came up because before I um before this book came out and it came out last month, around November I had this dream. 
And I don't dream every night, but when I do, I mean, you got to give me a break. I'm a therapist. I believe in the power of dreams, right? (laughs) And there have been a couple of dreams in my life where I've been like, whoa, Mm. that is very clear to me that this is a message from my unconscious, something, something's going on here. I need to pay Mm -hmm. attention to this. And I had this wild dream around November when I was starting to feel a lot of anxiety about, you know, I'm not a writer by trade and it's hard to write a book to to say the least. And then the publicity and promotional part of it is also just, you know, getting thrown in the deep end. And I have this dream one night and all this crazy stuff happens And at the end, there's a voice that's not my voice. It's like a man's voice. And it said, this is your senior year of college. Mm. And I wrote it on a sticky note because what I interpreted that to mean was my senior year of college. I was like, okay, I need to apply to these doctoral programs. I need to get my reference letters from these people. I have two weeks to do this. I need to get, you know, these grades so that I can get into this grad school. And, And if I could just plant myself back um, on Telegraph Street in Berkeley where I used to live in college and just be like, don't worry about the to-do list for today and just enjoy yourself. Mm. Like, that would have been such a gift. And I was so focused on all this stuff. I mean, I still had fun too, but I was so over-indexed on getting this stuff done that I didn't actually enjoy it. And it was almost like coming back, that dream was like, just enjoy this. Mm. You're not going to get all the stuff done. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to matter. This is like your senior of college, have fun. And so I've been taking that into all of these interviews and talks and it's just so much more fun. It's Mm. so much, like, it feels so much more alive to just let yourself enjoy the thing you're doing now. Mm. Yeah. I'm a habitual completionist Mm. and thinking that as soon as it gets complete, then I am complete. I think it started with consumerism, with money. Like if I just have a certain amount of money and you realize like, oh, if you make $50,000 a year, Mm -hmm. well, then if you start spending like you have $60,000 a year, now you're in debt. And so now Mm. I'm not complete. Oh, now I need more money. When that doesn't work, it's maybe more stuff will Mm. complete me. And when stuff doesn't work, then it is spirituality mm-hmm. or it is letting go of the stuff will make me happy. And you realize like, that's just another form of completionism and completionism is a form of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Mm. So when you look at the term perfect, if you take it back to the Latin root, perficere, per meaning completely and facere meaning done, mm. perfection actually means completely done. It does not mean flawless. And we use the term perfect to describe completeness all the time. Like if you say someone's a perfect stranger, you're not saying that stranger is flawless. You're saying this (laughs) this stranger is complete. This person is a complete stranger to me. And so what perfectionists are seeking is actually not flawlessness. It's wholeness that is always going to be internally sourced. And when you are not putting your perfectionism in check, you're going to do exactly what you're saying, right? You're going to say, I will be whole when Mm. I get this exterior thing. Like Mm -hmm. that's what perfectionism is trying to get your inner world and your outer world to match perfectly, to be in perfect alignment. And that can happen um, when you are present. 
But presence is the only ideal that anyone can ever actually achieve. Because when you're present, you are accepting the reality of what is, and you're also in a space of accepting the possibility of what could be. And that's why perfectionists gravitate towards presence so much. But the problem is they try to reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, and my house is all clean and the Windex isn't behind the cup. And then this is here. And this, you know, then I'll feel whole, relaxed, joyful, perfect, not resentful at all. Like all the stuff we feel when we're present. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really powerful game changer of like, you already are perfect. You're already completely done. You're a whole human being. You always have been. That makes you automatically worthy of all this stuff. There is no need to try to be something you already are. You don't need to try to win stuff that already belongs to you. The point is to enjoy it. Mm. So, sometimes there's a fundamental suspicion that says you you better not let yourself relax yeah. and enjoy yeah. because you'll regret it. You know, mm-hmm. I know that you can be in the present and feel so blissful and at home in yourself, but be careful because reality will will smack you in the face and make you regret that forever. How do you address that suspicion that you'll pay for it? I think by addressing the alternative, which mm-hmm. is like trusting yourself. And, and you have that suspicion because you don't trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And so you're controlling and micromanaging everything that you're doing because... What would happen if you just left yourself to your own devices? And what I think a lot of people think will happen is I'll just binge watch TV and get wasted and do a bunch of hedonistic stuff. And being able to say, like, you're a perfectionist. You're not a hedonist, right? Mm. So first of all, you're not after empty pleasure. You're after meaning and, you know, the pursuit of an ideal and worthy striving and all of that. And to be able to trust yourself you have to give yourself access to pleasure. And I'm not just talking about sexual pleasure, which is I think what a lot of people hear when they hear that word. I'm talking about like everyday pleasures, of like the pleasure of sleeping on clean sheets mm. or taking a walk barefoot on the beach or the first sip of your hot drink in the morning. And if you want to trust yourself more, you have to sort of pepper your life with things that bring you pleasure mm. and allow yourself to feel pleasure instead of using all the things that bring you pleasure as your little rewards and treats. I call that dog clicker language. And I think it's appalling when it's like, you know what? I'm going to give myself a piece of chocolate because I was good this week. Click, click. Mm -hmm. It's like, no. How about you give yourself access to goodness and pleasure because you deserve to feel good now instead of waiting to see how well you perform to see how much goodness you deserve. Mm. trusting that you can be trusted with. Yeah, we can trust ourselves. And I think this is like, if you want to go deep, this goes back to, you know, our mental health system is based on Freud. I'm not into Freud bashing. I think he was really brilliant and, and contributed a lot, but he did not believe people were good. He believed that people were basically animals with manners and that we spent all our psychic energy repressing urges that are sexual and aggressive in nature. So if we were left to our own devices, we would just be a mess of a civilization Mm. trying to have sex with each other and kill each other with no boundaries. And so, you know, you get someone like Adler, who is his greatest professional rival, believes like, if left to our own devices, we're going to be good. We're going to help each other. We're going to connect. And so all of therapy is about trying to fix yourself because of this idea that like you at your core are dysfunctional. 
in some level and you need instruction on how to be good. You can't trust yourself. That's why the model for therapy is one-on-one individual because it's based on the premise that the individual is the source of the dysfunction. Therapy could be a lot of other things. It could be a community model. It could be group therapy. These models exist, but they're not the primary model because the primary driving idea, which is in the zeitgeist, is there's something wrong with you. Mm. And the message in this book is like, let's just assume there's nothing wrong with you. And then you can trust yourself. You're not going to burn your house down if you give yourself a little extra time on Saturday. Ladies and gentlemen, Catherine Morgan Schaffler. Yes. Wow. The book is called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Is there anywhere else we should send folks to say hi to you? Uh, Well, I'm on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I always love connecting there. I'm on there every day. With boundaries, of course. And my website is also my name, KatherineMorganShaffler.com. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. At The Minimalist during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We call them minimal maxims, and we put these minimal maxims in the show notes over at podcast, oh, theminimalists.com slash podcast, so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. If you like, looks like our question today is from Dr. Wright. If you guys don't run ads, how do you make money? (laughs) (laughs) What an interesting question, because there's so many things that this question presupposes. Mm. And since Ryan and I have similar minimal maxims, I didn't share mine with him beforehand. I'll let him start today. Oh, thanks. Let's give him 60 seconds, Professor Sean. All right. Am I going? Oh, I'm already one second into it. All right, here we go. (laughs) When you add value, people are eager to support your work. So often family members, friends, listeners, they're like, hey, I want to I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to do what you do. Tell me, how can I make a living from, from from my passion? And my response is never like, well, here's the 10 best ways to make money from your passion. <laughs> what, what, what I what I tell them is, hey, look, if you're really passionate about something, then go ahead and do it. And what happens is when you fulfill that passion and work comes out of it and it's adding value to other people's lives, those people are going to go way out of their way to support you to make sure that you can still continue producing your work. And there is no one specific way. There are many ways to make money from your passion. And the ways that Josh and I make money is very different than how TK makes his money and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So follow or cultivate your passion. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, what's fascinating about what you're saying here is there will be people who support your work, right? But not all, everyone will. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we really get caught up is we think that like, oh, I have to do something where everyone will support me. Mm-hmm. But then it goes back to the idea of the Kevin Kelly thousand true fans thing. Like you only need a thousand true fans or some artists need 12 true fans and they will have a uh, a very abundant, wealthy life with those 12 true fans or 100 true fans or 1,000 true fans. But TK, this question, let's give you 60 seconds here in a moment, but this question, it almost presupposes that like it's binary. Either you're not going to make money or you are going to make money, but you have to do advertisements. And of course, on the private podcast, we have 
every week we have the advertisement suck segment. In fact, I'm calling someone out this week Uh specifically. And so we'll we'll get into that. But this presupposing that you must do something also limits our creativity in a way. Professor Sean, let's give TK Coleman 60 seconds on the clock. So I can ignore it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You're three seconds in, TK. For most of human history people earned money without a single advertisement. Now, I don't mean that people made money without getting the word out there. That's a part of making a living, right? You spread the word about the problems you can solve, about the services you can provide, and so on. What I'm talking about here are those artifacts, those artifacts that fill up these empty vacuums, these territories that we call ad space, right? Like the billboard. Can I put a sticker on your t-shirt? Can I put something on your car? Can I put this banner on your video? Can I interrupt your movie with the commercial ad space, those advertisements? Yeah, people make money with that. It's a legitimate way to make money. But for most of human history, people simply made money by creating value, satisfying the hell out of their customers, taking care of people so well that they went out and told other people about how awesome this service was. And that's what we do with a number of things that we do. We don't make our money by saying you can buy our bodies in exchange for a paycheck. That's beautiful. Mm. Mm. I'll say this. We are also not allergic to money. And so when we say advertisements suck, we're not saying, well, I hate money. I think money is evil and bad and and immoral. What I'm saying is I have a preference here. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, this question doesn't get asked of like Radiohead. No one goes up to Tom York and says, hey, if you don't put your music in commercials, how do you make any money? Right. Right? Because the music that he makes and his band makes is not about money. Right. The music is a creative act. And if it adds value, as Ryan said, then people are willing to support it. And if it doesn't add value, then people aren't going to support it. So give me 60 seconds. I'm just going to riff on what Ryan said here. Money is a byproduct of adding value. Quite often, we go the other way around. I'm going to find a way to make money and then hope that it adds value. But there is no money being earned without adding value. Yes, you can steal money from someone. You can run into a bank and take their money. You can scam someone and not add value and get their money. But if you want to earn a living, if you want to earn an income, well, you're going to have to earn it by adding value. Mm. And so the question I have is, who are you adding value to? Are you going to add value to the advertisers or are you adding value to your audience? Because if you're adding value to the advertisers, now all of a sudden your audience is the product. And that is the reason we don't do advertisements on the Minimalist Podcast. Wow. I love, by the way, you emphasizing earning because every time I have ever stated the economic observation that money is a reward for creating value, I have people who inform me that criminals exist and that there are some people who make money without adding value. And so I I love the way you languaged that um, to just sort of circumvent that objection and make that part clear. TK was writing it down. He's like, okay, robbing a bank. Yes. Scamming. (laughs) What else was there? (laughs) 
We're going to check it with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. Ryan and I, and for about a third of them, TK, we went on a tour last year. It was called the Love People Use Things Tour. There were 20 different events. All of them were recorded, thanks to our good friend Jordan No More over there, and Danny. Danny came along to, I think, three of the events. The three best events. That's right. <laughs> we try to pit them against each other. <laughs> Is it working? Uh, no, they uh, they did an outstanding job. Uh, Podcast Sean was with us as well. We did 20 different cities uh, throughout North America, and you can find all 20 events right now. com slash previous. We don't have any intention on going on tour anytime soon. That was our 10th tour in 12 years. You can find all of the recordings there. com slash previous. That'll take you to the Patreon page, and you can watch each of those. Speaking of live events, though, it looks like there are fewer than, I think, 25 tickets right now for the next Sunday Symposium which is March 26th, Sunday at noon. If you're in LA or if you want to come to LA, we had quite a few people. We had someone from Germany at the last one, a few people from Mexico, at least one person from Canada, and my favorite foreign country, someone came from Texas. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because they're different. (laughs) (laughs) That Texan was actually Danny. So Danny unknown here, standing over there like a, a sentinel watching guard over the podcast and over our TikToks. You can see us. Uh, we'll be March 26th, Sunday Symposium in Los Angeles, downtown LA, sundaysymposium.com. Only a few tickets left to that. Yeah. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. What do you got for us? We have a question here from David. He says, is there a difference between procrastination and resistance? I've seen this mentioned in Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art and notice a lot of people talking about them like they're the same thing. I think quite often those two words are used interchangeably. I will say this. Resistance is a beacon that illuminates meaningful pursuits. So every morning, this morning at 4 a.m., I got into the ice bath and there's resistance before I got in. And by the way, I feel this resistance every single time. Mm. But I know that I'm going to be pleased with myself. I'm going to be glad after that experience at the end of it right? Mm -hmm. Quite often with procrastination, I think the opposite happens. I don't know if I'm going to be appreciative of this outcome. I don't know if this is the thing I want to do. Resistance says every morning when I sit down to write, oh, there's something that would be way easier than this. Mm -hmm. Scrolling Instagram and double tapping again and again and again is much easier than sitting down and writing. But it's not a meaningful pursuit for me. It's not going to give me the actual reward. It'll give me a little bit of dopamine, but the reward will not be there at the end of it. And I think that's the difference between resistance and procrastination. Yeah, I see procrastination as one of many manifestations of resistance. I see resistance as just like anything that directs my focus away from being committed to what I love, to what brings me joy. And so resistance can take the form of just flat out quitting, flat out giving up, you know, giving in to the fear. Like it can take many different forms, um, whatever it takes. That's how Stephen Pressfield describes it. Whatever it takes to get you to not move in the direction of your life's calling. That's resistance. It'll mm. tell you whatever it takes. Whereas procrastination is kind of like this sense that if I put it off, if I don't do it now, maybe the future will bring me a moment where it just feels easier. Mm. It feels easier to confront my fears and face the risk. 
And that's a very interesting and unique particular form of, of resistance. But resistance is broader than that. But procrastination is one form. Yeah. I dig it. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream later in the private podcast. But first, Alabama, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Catherine. I currently live in the Bay Area. Every um, first week of December, um, with clutter, my children go through all of their toys. And we wash them, we clean them, we put them in cute little bags, and then we donate them to centers around our community. And they love acting like Santa and sharing their toys and stuff. And it gives us kind of that pre-Christmas purge period. Um, Also, we have, we live in an RV full time. And so having that limited of space has definitely helped us with the grandparents and that kind of stuff with, they give us more experiences than stuff since they know we just physically don't have room. Hello, Josh. Hello, Ryan. My name is Sandra and I currently live in Zurich, Switzerland. I want to recommend the books that might hopefully bring a lot of inspiration to you and your listeners. In my profession as a designer, I have found myself often challenged with the consumption-oriented mindset of the industry, and although I work in publishing, mostly designing books, I would still find myself often wishing that I could bring more of a positive change into this world with my work, but I never really knew how. Then I found a book called The Little Red Book about how to make design matter by David Carlson, and it inspired me so much that I decided to share it with you. In my opinion, any person, designer or not, can find value in it because it encourages the reader to make their work more meaningful and it guides you with simple, inspiring examples. I really can't express enough how much this book has changed for me, has, has made a change for me and how excited I now feel to make all the ideas happen. Welcome back to the Minimalists Private Podcast. Let's start with some talkaboutables, y'all. We got a few talkaboutables here. I don't typically think about toxic masculinity because I think this term is often overused Mm. and it has been rendered meaningless much of the Mm. time. However, I want to show you a video and I want you to tell me, is this toxic masculinity? Mm. All right. Professor Sean. Who do you call when you are at your lowest? Who is that one person? Nobody. I'm a man. No one cares. Not a single soul. Nobody. No one. Because I'm all alone. I think I speak for um, a lot of people when I say that I don't call anyone. Nobody. I'm a guy. Nobody gives a shit. Speaking for the guys when I say this, literally no one. <laughs> Do y'all call someone? Nobody. Just nobody. No one's talking to nobody. You guys. No one. I'm a man. No one cares. No one. Not a single fucking person. I wouldn't call anyone. I wouldn't turn to a single person on this earth because they don't care. They will just find a way to use it against me one day. TK, the reason I ask whether or not this is toxic masculinity, there's a there's an assumption that in order to be a man and to be manly, hmm. I 
must behave in a way that doesn't show weakness ever. I wouldn't call it toxic masculinity when a bunch of men say, I don't share my problems with anyone because I'm a man. I would call that a lot of men sincerely expressing how they feel. And when we slap a label on that, like toxic masculinity, that creates some kind of war, some Mm. kind of battle to fight, some kind of resistance. And why the hell would you want to go to war without being curious about what's going on first? Mm. If anyone tells me I don't have anyone that I share my problems with because I am a man, then I want to have a conversation about that. Forget about the labels. What do you mean? Why do you feel that way? Because whether you're a man or a woman, you need some kind of accountability, some kind of affirmation, some kind of encouragement. And clearly there are a lot of people out there who feel like the world doesn't care about how I feel. The world will pick that up as a weakness. And I don't think that's a way to live. That doesn't mean you should be indiscriminate about just showering your emotions to anyone who will listen because there is a great danger in being vulnerable with people that don't have your best interest in mind. There is great danger in giving up information about yourself, about struggles, about weaknesses with people that might have bad intentions or people who aren't trustworthy or people who hadn't proven themselves. But everybody needs a band of brothers. Everybody needs a family. Everybody needs somebody that they can walk through life with and share their heart with. So, no, I wouldn't slap a label on it. I would try to understand it. Ryan, I know that you're part of a men's group and Mm -hmm. you have talked a lot about this with me individually, like on a personal level, and you talk to your men's group as well. The reason I, I talk about toxic masculinity here, I'm not putting that label on any of these men. I want to be clear. I think it's a societal problem when these men feel like they're not allowed to show emotion, to express. They're not even able to call anyone. Yeah. Oh, y'all call someone? Mm. Not even realizing that that is an option. Yeah. That is the toxic part. It's the societal constraint and expectation that then permeates mm-hmm. the culture. And that culture says, hey, in order for you to be a man, you better just suck it up. Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy. The men's team that I'm on, the foundation is men supporting men. And it literally is what the entire division revolves around because of exactly the video we saw where like men don't feel like they can ask for support. And um, yeah, I, I also would not label that video or those men or that trait as being toxic. To me, toxic masculinity is like, you know, if, if I were to write a list of traits Um, there are, you know, certain masculine traits that you could write down. And when those traits are used to dominate, control, manipulate, like, I think that is where the toxic masculinity comes in. And that's why I look at this as toxic masculinity, because these men aren't being toxically masculine but they are being dominated or controlled by a societal expectation that says you can't reach out to anyone. So it's not me saying these men are doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. It is society imposing a particular standard and that standard in and of itself, I view as toxic. By by the way, some of it is, some of it is real, right? Like I I think um, 
expressing your problems is a highly contextual thing where um, just because you have a problem and you need to express it doesn't mean you express it at any time with anyone under any conditions whatsoever. And there are many spaces where it is a reality for men, particularly in competitive spaces with other men, where if you complain about something or if you express vulnerability, you will get eaten alive. That doesn't mean you respond to that reality by saying, I'm never going to open up my heart. But it does mean you have to exercise some discernment about who you open up your heart with. Because, yes, there are men who will smell blood when they hear that kind of stuff. Yes. And they will use that against you. And I think some some of this is coming from the fact that a lot of the people who feel this way, they are thinking of spaces where they spend a lot of their lives in where they know they will be punished for being vulnerable. And that is a reality for men that men have to deal with. Yeah. Last word on this, Ryan? Man, um, yeah, uh, I love how you framed what you just framed because when you hear toxic masculinity, it always implies that the man is responsible for the toxic masculinity that is being projected into the world. Mm. But the way you framed it, though, Millie, is it's not just the man's responsibility. It's also society's responsibility to not, um, yeah, to, to, to not express those, those, those traits in a way that is uh, manipulating someone else. I've got one more talk aboutable for you here. TK, how arrogant are you? <laughs> Press a shot. How and- arrogant are you to think that you deserve to go through life with no one ever saying anything that you don't agree with or like. So TK mm. sent this to me and Ryan last week, and yeah. I said this would be a perfect talk aboutable. If you're just listening to the audio version of this, it's just a video of Ricky Gervais. And it's really, well, what is this video even about, TK? It's about the phenomenon of being offended. I am offended by that joke you just made. And this is a comedian talking about the efforts to censor comedians or cancel comedians or shut down their careers because someone is offended by a joke they made, Mm -hmm. which is a definite development, right? Because comedy uh, is probably becoming increasingly more safe, increasingly more delicate, increasingly more uh, diplomatic and PC because many comedians, many people, period, are just afraid to say what they really think or afraid to say something that they consider to be funny because someone's going to say, I'm offended. And that might be all it takes to bring about an end to their career. And what he's saying here is that it's arrogant to think that who, that no matter who you are, you can go through life and not have to deal with the fact that there are people who will disagree with you or see the world in ways that are offensive to you. Mm-hmm. That's a part of life. And some of the responsibility belongs to us to come up with a robust, healthy mechanism for how we are going to deal with the fact that we are offended by things that other people believe. Because you can't erase that and you can't pass any kind of law or policy that magically transforms people's hearts and causes them to think of us or mm-hmm. feel about us in the way that we want them to think and feel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, anytime I get offended, um, my my knee-jerk reaction is not to be like, oh, you can't say that or you can't do that and I'm offended and let me let me project all of this, you know, offense that I'm feeling. It's more about, you know, my knee-jerk reaction being, um, why does this offend me? Like, is this something that I need to be offended 
over. And a lot of times, um, you know, it, it roots back to, you know, somewhere in my upbringing where something happened and there's like a wound there that, um, is, you know, having salt poured in it or being reopened or whatever it is, but like it's sensitive. And instead of me saying, oh, well, I have a wound there. Don't touch that. It's more about like, how can I heal that wound? Mm. How can I, you know, um, how can I toughen up and be in man? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, it, it is interesting. I love the whole, uh, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right saying. Yeah. Because, yeah. because really where, you know, where is it going to be more valuable to just cancel people anytime one person gets offended? Or is it going to be more valuable to like, look at that person that's offended and say, you know, Hey, why are you offended? Is there a wound there that maybe, maybe needs healing? And how can you heal that wound? Yes. I mean, it's almost like, um, as a kid, you know, the whole saying like sticks and stones may break my bones, but you know, names will never hurt me. And I mean, that's, that applies as adults too. Yeah. You know, in fact, the obverse of that is also true. And so, yes, people don't have the power to offend you unless you allow yourself to be offended. Mm -hmm. Right. But then also the compliments aren't necessarily just because you're offended doesn't mean it's true or just because you're complimented also doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. You know, if someone goes up to a Nazi and says, Hey, nice swastika. <laughs> like what? <laughs> that, that, that compliment doesn't mean that what you're doing is right or righteous. Yeah. And I think we have to realize that. In fact, Mal and I, Malabama, well, we were talking about this earlier. We got a great comment and I sent out to the, the group. I forgot who sent it to me. But I saw it and I just took a screenshot of it. And the person said, Malabama, I love her laugh on the podcast. And I don't know exactly what it said, but that's just me paraphrasing. Um, yeah, it was uh, someone saying, uh, tweeting, um, please do a short podcast compiling Malabama's laughs. She has me in stitches. <laughs> and I sent this to the group just uh, as like, oh, isn't this really nice, right? Mm -hmm. But Alabama had sort of a visceral reaction against that. You want to talk about that? Sure. Let's let's get vulnerable, y'all. <laughs> uh, I cried and not like tears of joy, like, like a, oh gosh, I do not deserve that kind of praise cry. Mm. It was such a weird way to start out my morning. And we we talked about this in, in the, the studio once I got in, because I looked at you and I was like, I, that made me so uncomfortable. Mm. And there's something about seeing compliments especially like that are specifically directed towards me and it couldn't possibly be for anybody else. It is meant for you that feels they're like, surely that's a typo. Like that they, they meant to say like Ryan or they meant to say Josh or TK or it, it never felt quite deserved. Mm -hmm. And part of the conversation that we had was this battle over, uh, over pride. I'm almost allergic to compliments because I'm so scared of pride becoming arrogance that I can't hold on to anything that I'm proud of. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, man, Mal, I, I relate with you so much because, you know, Josh, um, he always wants to like highlight people's greatness where, whenever he can. Oh, yeah. Or, or he like really goes out of his way to uh, make people feel special on an individual level whenever he can. So um, with me, he's done this uh, by like at a live event. It's my birthday or something. Mm -hmm. And he's like, let's sing happy birthday to Ryan. And there was a certain point where I'm like, can you please not do that? Oh, because I don't, because I didn't feel deserving of being recognized like that. Like big whoop. It's Ryan Nicodemus's birthday. Who freaking cares? You know? Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. And I don't know the, you know, the, the childhood wound there or whatever it is, but there is something there. Um, yeah, I can totally re- relate with you. I don't feel, I don't feel like I can accept compliments either. It's I'm, mm. I'm the same exact way, Mal. Yeah. It's like, thank you is not in your normal lexicon. Like yeah. it's weird to say thank you and, and genuinely mean it and, and accept that love and warmth. Yeah. But, but also saying thank you to that person is giving them a gift. They, they gave you a gift. Now also realizing though, mm. That those compliments, if you need them, they also become a prison. Mm. Yes. And the only way the criticism ceases to sting is if you don't feel the same pleasure from the compliments. You, you can't have the peaks without the valleys. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I've learned is I can accept any of those. Someone can say, oh, terrible shoes you have there. Or they could say, <laughs> awesome shoes. And either way, it can't mean so much to me that I'm willing to move around the room like a balloon that has mm. been popped or, or, or the, the air is being let out, right? Because yeah. what's happening there? I am just acquiescing to everyone else's and so uh, everyone else's opinion. And so what I realized while I was talking to Mallory about earlier is the comment says much more about the commenter than it does about you. And that's even true if it's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. What they're saying is, I enjoy Malabama's laugh. Keyword there, I. And someone else might say, this is terrible. Can you edit her laugh out of the podcast? And the reason that that stings is we prefer one over the other. And we talked about the pride thing earlier and we were talking to, with Catherine about pride as well. Pride says something about needing to hold on to the praise. You can accept the praise, say thank mm-hmm. you, without holding on to it. But renouncing it is then tying yourself to the praise. Renouncing the criticism is tying yourself to the criticism. Mm. But you can hold it for a second and then you can let it go. Yeah. There's something about the narrative that we tell ourselves too when someone gives you praise and the narrative is like, I'm just a normal human being, you know, who the heck am I? Yeah, humble like, yourself yeah. kind of thing. And that praise interrupts that narrative. And, and both in our difficulty with accepting the praise and with our idolization of the praise, we are often guilty of making more of it than what it is. Something mm. I wrote the other day on social media is that Uh, most of the people who follow you on social media are not going to show up at your funeral. So even when people tell you that you're great, they often walk away and completely forget that they told you that. Mm. And if you ran into that person on the street and was like, thank you so much for telling me I was great, they'd probably be like, what's your name again? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, how valuable is that like? How valuable is that social media comment? I'm not saying it isn't valuable, but it often doesn't have the level of like weight that we attribute to it. When someone mm-hmm. gives you a compliment, chances are they're not saying to you, you are perfect, you had no help, you're a completely self-made person, and you're totally responsible for 100% of all the goodness about you and you have no flaws. Yeah. But we kind of like, no, well, you know, I got it from my mama and like, you know, like, well, I had a hard life or somebody helped me out. And mm-hmm. Usually when people compliment us, they're not assuming that those things aren't true. You know, mm-hmm. it's a lot more casual than we often take it to be. One uh, also last comment about uh, offense really quickly. I just wanted to say, getting back to this topic of being offended, I think that being offended is kind of a religious practice for many. It's a path of righteousness, if you will. 
when I say I'm offended, like if you make a joke about Ryan and I say I'm offended on behalf of Ryan, Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to not look like a good guy when I say that. Mm. It's very difficult for me to not seem righteous. And even though I've made no arguments for my position, even though I haven't proven that what you have done is wrong, at the level of perception, you make a joke about Ryan and I say that I'm offended on his behalf, I look way more righteous than you, Mm. right? Without having even earned it simply by having a certain kind of emotional response. And the tricky part of that is I take the risk of actually being offensive to Ryan by presuming that I can speak on behalf of his concerns. What if he finds it funny and I'm offended on his behalf? Oh, what then? And so many times when we put our necks out there to be offended on behalf of other people, we can do it out of a desire to be seen as righteous. I'm a defender of these people over here. But have you taken the time to talk to these people first? Because there's a big difference between being a voice for people who do feel offended, but are too afraid or powerless to speak for themselves and being a presumptuous person who in an act of self-righteousness and virtue signaling says, Mm -hmm. I'm going to declare myself to be offended on behalf of this group of people that I would never go around because I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they smell. I'm scared to go through their neighborhoods, but I'm offended, designate me as the righteous one. Nah, you got to earn that. You got to earn that righteousness. And um, it's possible that you might be correct when you say I'm offended, but we need more evidence than just that. Yeah. Well, if you say you're offended, you're always correct. But as Ryan said, it doesn't mean that you're right. Speaking of offended, I'm offended by this next segment. Oh boy. All right. (laughs) Malabama, what time is it? It's time for TK's Tweet of the Week. This one is from someone named Mia. Guilt is useless. That's not it. It's probably in your stack over there, TK Coleman. And so we do this little segment where TK gets to read something about how terrible the government is. (laughs) (laughs) Our education system is broken. Capitalism is the best. (laughs) I feel like I've done at least like seven (laughs) non-government tweets in a row. I think you only did half of one ever. But it's not as funny if we don't make fun of you. Yeah, (laughs) Reputations die hard. (laughs) But if you're offended, it's your fault. (laughs) I'm I'm offended by these jokes on capitalism. All right. This comes from Mia at MiaSoFly55. Ooh, I love that name. (laughs) Guilt is a useless emotion. Forgive yourself and do better next time. Mm. Is guilt useless? I don't feel that way. But I understand the essence of this tweet, though. So tell me why you don't think guilt is useless. Because guilt is a symptom. Mm. And... To ignore a symptom is to ignore the problem, the root problem that got you that symptom. So, you know, if I was just to append it a little bit, I would say, you know, neurosing and guilt is useless. I would like that is useless to sit here and just feel guilty, especially because, um, you know, going back to what we were talking about on the podcast, like it's also a religious practice to feel guilt. Yes. Literally, yes, it is a religious practice to feel guilty. And it, it doesn't do anything if you just feel guilty and then uh, uh, don't change your behavior or, you know, try a different approach or whatever it is. So again, the essence of this tweet, I 100% agree with. Um, but when I feel guilty about something, it is a symptom gives me an opportunity to look at why I have that symptom, where it's coming from. And it gives me an opportunity to do exactly what this tweet is saying, to do better next time. 
So clinging to guilt is useless. What is clinging to guilt? That's shame. Yeah. So guilt says, yeah, there's something that I did here that I would rather not do in the future. So I'm not going to do it in the future. And in that sense, it's not useless. It's useful. Mm -hmm. But continuing to hold on to that guilt and drag it forward once I've learned the lesson from it, that's shame. That says, oh, I am this type of person. This Mm -hmm. is who I am at my core. And then I totally agree with it. Shame in that context is useless. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we all agree with what we think she probably meant, but we just would have worded it differently because I think you all agree with me that I think she meant something along the lines of dwelling on your guilt. Harboring guilt Mm -hmm. is a useless activity. Just forgive yourself and let it go. Now, I will say here's why I think this is a very relevant tweet, because it may seem like a common sense observation, but there is a performative aspect of guilt that plays a very big role in sending out social cues, particularly ones that say, I care. So imagine if you um, hurt someone's feelings or you make an important, you make a mistake that's very costly uh, and you say, I'm sorry, there's a performative value to wearing a long face mm. and being like, yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry. And having, having a bad day or at least being unhappy for about 15 to 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you say, hey, I'm sorry, man. Hey, but that basketball game yesterday, wasn't it so good? It just looks like you don't care. And so even if it's internally healthy to own it, acknowledge it, and then move on to whatever gives you joy, it lacks the performative value of wearing the long face. And so it can be easy to get lost in that performance of guilt as a way of signaling to people you care that you play that game a little bit too long Mm. assuming that the game is worth playing at all and then you you forget to move on yeah yeah speaking of moving on let's move on to our obsolete objects segment you can send us your obsolete objects send us your pictures of those your amass it or trash it should i get rid of this your impulse purchases something that has tempted you over the last few weeks or months podcast at theminimalists.com looks like we have an obsolete object today from Cheryl. Now, I wanted to include this when I did the She Shed. I made an announcement that Bex, well, I finally got rid of my storage shed that I was paying for for my wife. <laughs> and um, Matt, we, we actually put a shed in our backyard. I think TK wasn't here for that. No. Yeah. And no, so he wasn't. Uh, we did a, every week we do a home tour on the podcast and uh, we built a shed in our backyard so we could get rid of our storage unit, the hell of Bex's camping gear. Now, why do we have a, a storage unit? Is because I did not want to have camping gear strewn throughout our house or just in our bedroom somewhere or in our closet. Mm -hmm. And so we decided the best use of our money at the time until we could afford to buy a shed was to pay 80 bucks a month for a storage locker for a temporary period of time. Not that the stuff was going to sit in there in perpetuity. However, what Cheryl was saying is she had a storage locker for a, a long period of time. Can we read her comment? Yes. She said that she wanted to share an excerpt from a blog she posted in regards to that experience. Quote, then came the math. Over the course of that time period from January 2006 through April 2015, I had spent a staggering $6,780.15 to store my useless things. That's right. I paid nearly seven thousand dollars for someone to hold on to things I didn't even want or need. As painful as it was to see that figure, it was behind me, a mistake I won't repeat. 
On the bright side, had I not confronted the storage unit when I did, I would have gone on to spend an additional $7,440 through today. Mm. 93 months at $80 per month, which is what it cost when I left there. However, I'm sure they've raised that price. So it could be closer to $8,000. Thinking about it that Mm. way, thank goodness I took care of it when I did. Sure, I lost $7,000, but by finally confronting the stuff, most of which I had no use for, by the way, I'm saving thousands more. What a relief. Mm. TK, isn't this a metaphor in some ways? We often pay for things that cease to give us value. Or maybe they give us value even for a period of time, but we keep paying for it. Yes, we pay money, $7,000. We pay with, for it, though, with energy, with attention, with time, with our skills, and it eats us alive slowly mm. over a protracted period of time. Yeah, and we're paying for a narrative and the right to hold on to that narrative. Because when you say goodbye to that stuff and just give it away or just recycle it, well, it's over now. There's no story to tell yourself about it other than this is what it meant to me when I bought it and this is what I did with it after it ceased to be useful. But you pay that storage fee, it's not just for somebody to hold on to your stuff. Mm -hmm. It's for you to hold on to the story of one day. Mm -hmm. One day I might. And the price of one day I might is so much more than just the money you give to the storage facility. It's also the the mind share and the creative energy that you take away from the now moment and all of the joy that you could be experiencing in this now moment. Because it's similar to procrastination, right? Where what you are choosing is not a life of comfort, but a life in which you try to see how much enjoyment and fun can I have while being haunted by this ghost. Mm. This ghost that says, you know, you got to pay for that, right? Mm. You know, this is going to come back to haunt you, right? Mm. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a she shed before, TK? No. Yeah, me either. I'm from, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> I don't even know if that... I'm the only well, one no, it's, it's funny because like, it's, it's like... Uh, well, explain wh- why is it a she shed? Well, it's actually not a she shed, but my wife's is just a, a shed. Yeah. I jokingly called it a she shed. Yeah. It's the female equivalent of a man cave. And so like often what'll happen is if you want like some sort of crafts area, you would call it a man cave for men where you like you do your manly <laughs> things. Right. And where women do their womenly things, oh. it, it's used the term is she shed, right? <laughs> oh, I, I think just, I just call that the house. <laughs> <laughs> I just call it going home. <laughs> oh, shoot. I think I think what we do now is we use both of these terms pejoratively. I actually yeah. don't have a man cave or a she shed at home. <laughs> we just have a regular shed. Yeah. I keep a broom in there and Bex keeps everything else in there. That broom was cathartic though. Yeah. Gosh. I bet. No, it's funny because <laughs> I had never heard of that term either until he yeah. brought it up. I'm like, what the heck is a she shed? <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I've got a sucky ad segment that I want to talk to y'all about. And I listened to Scott Galloway's podcast. So I want to call out Scott Galloway here. Prof G. You familiar with Prof G? Mm -mm. Okay. So I want to call out Prof G today on the Minimalists podcast. Are are you going to tell me who Prof G is first? He has a really great podcast. It's called the Prof G podcast. It is a rather popular podcast, and he talks a bit about economics. He talks about stocks and business, uh, business advice, etc. And I enjoy his perspective, even though I might disagree with him regularly. But that's not why I'm calling him out. I want to call out Professor Scott 
G because of an advertisement that he did. This is the problem with advertisements. So on his February 9th podcast, he said something that I really enjoyed. He said, we need to be less, less, he said, we need to be less ageist. We need to better accept our seniors. Mm. And to that, I said, bravo. And right after that segment, there was an advertisement for a skincare product in which Scott Galloway read, they have a host of skincare products designed to fight aging. So which is it? Do we need to be less ageist Mm -hmm. or do we need to fight aging? Mm. This is the problem with advertisements. Advertisements allow us, in fact, encourage us to throw our values out the window in order to make a quick buck, in Mm. order to earn money, because he's earning money here, but he's doing so in a way that tramples his own values. He believes in something and truly believes in it. Mm. This truth that we do not treat seniors fairly. We often step on our seniors. Well, how do we do that? By telling them they are incomplete. You know what you need? A skincare product that helps you fight aging. It's nonsense. And if you weren't doing advertisements, you would never talk about a skincare product that helps people fight aging. And so this is the problem with ads. Mm. If you have values for enough money, You're willing to compromise them, even if it's just for 30 seconds or 60 seconds. And Mm. that is the problem. I saw this, by the way, Mm. on the Super Bowl ads as well. When you see, you know, these so-called rock stars talking about, oh, uh, you can't be a rock star if you're in the corporate world. And what I would say to those rock stars is you can't be a rock star if you are in a commercial as well. Oh, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you are also trampling on your values for a paycheck. And I'm not against money. I know that Scott is a hundred millionaire, and he has tons and tons of money. And great if he wants to even get more of it. But why trample your values in order to earn a little bit more money? And by the way, it totally taints and ruins and poisons Mm. the beautiful monologue you had just moments ago. Yeah. Now, uh, one one quick clarification. Is it possible that that maybe this is just an opportunity for him to be aware of some of the ad that the ads that are ran on his content? Because I would imagine that it's a process of learning, a process of discovery, right? There's a right relationship to be had between your messaging and your ads. And it could have been an ad about a uh, an assisted living facility right after he gave that message or something like that. And that would be fine. So could it be something like he just didn't know that that was there and that can be an opportunity for him to be aware and be like, oh, okay. As opposed to somebody giving him a check and being like, we want you to say this message that you mm. don't believe in. Right. Well, he read the, it's not like they just inserted an ad into yeah. his podcast. He read. He had to read that. It was yeah. an ad yeah, read yeah. that he himself read. Yeah. And so if you just juxtapose this, Danny sure. Unknown, for maybe a TikTok video, sure. what you would see is him saying, we need to be less ageist, followed by fight aging with this skincare product. Yeah. All right. So that brings me to my second thing. Is it possible that those two things can coexist? What, like those those exact two phrases? Yeah, so on, on one sure. end, he's, he's saying to people who have this cosmetic ambition, mm-hmm. right? Here's a product that can meet that goal. 
And at the same time, he's saying, hey, for people who might not use those products or who might just be evidently older or something along those lines, don't discriminate Mm -hmm. against them, don't treat them in these bad ways. Is that possible? I think it's possible, but it's not. What what I hear you asking is, is it possible to do that and be genuine? And that I do not think is possible. Mm. It's possible for those. I mean, obviously it's possible. He literally said those two things right (laughs) after each other. (laughs) But the thing is, is like, you know, the, uh, the amount of uh, cognitive dissonance that he has to have to read that. Uh, like you have, you have to have that. I mean, I bet you every time he reads an ad, there is no like, how do I feel about this ad? This is like, cha-ching, get this over with. And once it's over and get back to the podcast, I don't even think he's questioning what the ad is saying, which is funny because like advertisers has, have the ability or companies have the ability to cancel people because if someone does something, you know, that whatever is egregious and crazy and whatever it is, insert, you know, really crazy opinion there, statement there, like an advertiser can be like, oh, we don't want to associate with you anymore. But it doesn't work the other way, really. Right. It's like you can't like like, like Scott here can't be like, you know what? Um, I'm going to cancel this company because I don't believe in, uh, you know, ageism. And um, this company clearly uh, doesn't align with my values. So I'm going to stop reading this company's advertisements. It's it, it's a one way street. Now, he, I mean, I'm sure he gets to pick and choose what you know what he wants to advertise. But it's just, I don't know, there's something interesting and maybe a deeper conversation about how companies can cancel people, but people can't really cancel companies. Except we can. That's what we've done. Well, we've, yeah. We've yeah. blanket canceled advertisers yeah. because they can't advertise on our podcast. And it's tempting. Like, I mean, I had, um, I met with the CEO of uh, Son of a Tailor, the t-shirts that I get. And he was like, you know, we're looking for opportunities to, you know, maybe get into some of your messaging. And I'm like, dude, like I will talk about your t-shirts all day long. I'm like, but I don't want to have to talk about your t-shirts. And I really appreciate what you do with your company and the attention to detail. And, um, you know, not just with the material and the product, but like even environmentalism, like they go way out of the way to do. So I could, I could justify advertising son of a tailor, but there is still a, you don't want to give up the freedom. Yeah, and th- but there's still something there that would make me be um, th- that would prevent me from being a genuine person. So can those two messages live together? Yeah, clearly. But I mean, can they live together with Scott being genuine? Um, I I don't think so. No. Do you think it's qualitatively different from the following? If I said, "Hey, y'all, stop making fun of people who are bald. That's not right." And then at the same time, I say, "Hey, here's a, a hair care product for bald men that can help your hair grow back." Mm-hmm. You, would you see that as a contradiction? Because I because I. I would be comfortable with both of those messages coexisting, but would you see that as a contradiction? I would see it as a contradiction, yes. Okay. But, yeah, I, I know we're out of time, but I, yeah. we, we might want to well, add a, a few more minutes uh, going forward into some of these <laughs> outlets because I just feel like some interesting <laughs> debates can happen uh, but that I, people might enjoy. But I think like it is perspectival. Like, it, you know, what I think doesn't really matter. You know, like my two cents is just is worth that. So um, I don't think you're a bad person or disingenuous for thinking that those two messages can coexist. I mean, that is, it's your perspective. And hey man, different perspectives, it's what makes the world go round. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to be clear about this. I don't think skincare products are bad or evil Mm -hmm. or whatever. No. I see a hypocrisy here and that is the underlying problem. We are willing to sacrifice our values, be less ageist, also fight aging. 
that literally is incongruent, right? Mm. And so what I see here, and by the way, I'm not even against all ads either. I think some ads can be informative. When I mm-hmm. see an ad for a film I want to see, I, I don't see the problem with that. If I see an ad for a real estate sort of thing that's going on, okay, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. The problem I have is when I see celebrities, especially hawking poison, like doing Doritos ads or Coca-Cola ads mm-hmm. and putting their name behind something that is objectively harmful mm. to an individual, to the greater good, if you want to call it that. And so that's the problem I have here is, and the bigger problem I have with Scott's message is he completely canceled out this beautiful monologue he had. <laughs> mm. Imagine if we went, all right, we're finishing up, we're wrapping up the advertisement suck segment. Uh, now a word from our sponsors. This is brought to you by Storage Sheds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did see an ad. Somebody posted this online where like the neon lights outside this com- inside this convenience store. And, and uh, the first message was, Jesus saves, he loves you. And then the very next uh, message was shrimp special two ninety nine, and those two messages can coexist, but they certainly felt uh, oddly juxtaposed. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes I, I get what you're saying about like following up a certain kind of message with a certain kind of ad can steal the thunder of the message you're mm. trying to convey. But I would love to have more discussion on some yeah. of these types of things. Yeah, yeah. no, no, me Let's too. Let's do it next week. All right, Melbourne, I do have to disagree with you. Uh, movie previews suck. <laughs> they ruin the movie. Yeah, usually that's true. Oh, the worst is when like there's a movie preview and it and, and, like it looks amazing because it's got all these action scenes or you know whatever great dialogue whatever it is and then you watch the movie and literally the best parts of the movie were already in the preview. As a matter of principle, I've done this for years. <laughs> I never watch more than thirty seconds of a trailer because yeah. all of them they show the whole movie. Yes. They spoil it. Yeah, yeah. and that didn't used to be the case. They used to be teasers, but now. In order to break through the noise, it's essentially an attenuated version of the entire film. I want to move on to our weekly home tour, although we don't have an actual home tour. I asked TK and Ryan for some photos. I I got nothing from them (laughs) because they won't let me into their homes. So maybe they'll give us something next week. Uh, Jordan actually has one for us, so we might see his home as well next week. He Mm -hmm. got this new workstation, this new work chair that is unlike any other chair. But Jordan, instead of putting a photo of one of our homes on the screen. Maybe you can put this photo that I sent you earlier. I took Ella, my nine-year-old daughter, to her first concert. And it was a Matt Carney concert. And she absolutely loves Matt Carney's music. And she's singing along to the songs. Mm. But before we got there, I sent Matt a text. And I just said, hey, my nine-year-old, we're coming to your show in Ventura County. We're in Ventura today. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter would love to meet you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, just come on, come around back. I'll have my tour manager let you guys in. And so we snuck Ella into the green room, which was actually green. Yes, yeah. not many green rooms yeah. are green. And we've been in hundreds of green ro- oh, rooms, yeah. but very few are green. Yeah. And so here Ella is with Matt Carney and she got to meet him and she mm. immediately told him, she says, I'm a pretty good singer too. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I love her. Dude, Matt is such an outstanding human being. He really is. He really is, man. Like, yeah, I really, uh, yeah, I, I really, I really love Matt. He's he's great. That's so cool. He let her come back there and meet him. It was a wonderful experience for her. It was her first concert. She didn't know what to expect. And um, she thinks I'm the coolest person on earth because people come up and they recognize me. And yeah. so like, they're all walking up. A minimalist guy. And she's like, 
it's so cool that you get recognized. <laughs> and I'm like, why, thank you, Ella. Uh, <laughs> well, yes, I am cool. Thank you. I don't think she, I, she doesn't realize like what, what I'm being recognized for. She mm-hmm. just thinks that like, I don't, maybe it's my hair or something. Mm-hmm. I don't think she really understands completely. But the concert, she was dancing the whole time. She uh, eventually snaked her way up to like the front row and was up there by herself, just getting down to Matt Carney's music. Aww. And there was also a guy who um, who opened the show, Mark Sibilia, and we got to meet him briefly backstage as well. I'll talk about him more a bit on the added value segment. But I thought, what a beautiful experience for Ella. She got to go to her first concert and... It's one of those things. It's like, oh yeah, you'll remember your first concert in perpetuity. And he took a photo with her, mm-hmm. and like they even did a Polaroid with her. Like whoever was shooting his photos, like took a, fo- a Polaroid photo and handed it to Ella afterwards. So she has this Polaroid of her with with Matt Carney. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a great experience. This is not a planned gift. Like I didn't think anything like that might even happen. I just wanted to take her there so she could enjoy a concert, mm-hmm. and uh, she got so much out of it. It was like. You know, this term compersion comes up, right? When you experience the joy of someone else, right? Yeah. And often that's talked about in like a a, uh, a partner, a sexual partner sort of sense, right? Mm. But set that aside, you can feel joy from someone else's joy all the time. When someone mm. else smiles or laughs, we smile. When you see a baby that just is cracking up for no reason, yeah. that's yeah. contagious. But I also found yeah. that is true when you have a kid and you see their joy through the experience, it's like I get to witness, mm. I've been to 20 Matt Carney concerts, mm. but I get to witness her joy. This is, I get to experience the first time yeah. again. Yeah. yeah. How beautiful is that? No, yeah. that's awesome. That's so cool. That's real beautiful, man. I love that. Well, we'll return to a home tour next week. So. I don't know, man. That was way better than a picture of my my place. <laughs> yeah, right. right? Oh, we so should have just said better. that was a picture of your place. <laughs> we should, yeah, I got a green room. Ella <laughs> was at, uh, was in Ryan's uh, green room right. with Matt Carney. Yeah, Matt came over. Photo <laughs> <laughs> book story time. Any other questions from the Patreon live stream? Let's try to tackle one more of those. Let's do it. We, we have one here from Kaya. She says, we're all trying to build our perfect selves, but I realize I'm trying to control how my future will turn out by making certain decisions today. How do I let go of controlling tomorrow and live today? Mm. Yeah, I mean, control, as Catherine talked about, is a bit of a misnomer. And that's why I misread the title of the book, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Everything. Yeah. Because when you give up control, it feels like you're giving up everything. Mm -hmm. If you're a perfectionist. But I will say this, to gain control, the only way to truly gain control is to let go of control. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean to renounce control. And Kaya, I want to be clear about that. If you're trying to push away control, that's also meaning you're powerless. Mm. If you're holding on to control, it's going to, it's like trying to hold on to water. Yeah. Good luck. It's just going to yeah. slip right through your fingers. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just interesting. Like, I, the older I get, the less control I desire. Now, if I could flip a switch and feel like I had complete control over everything, sure, I would love that. Anyone would love that. But that is a fantasy. That is not reality. So, you know, for me, I don't have control over anything. I have maybe some influence, Mm. you know, 
So where I have influence, what comes out of my mouth, what I do with my time, there's the, there are these different pieces of influence I have on my life, but I have no control over what that influential, what those influential things will do. Mm-hmm. And it is freeing to use that influence and not have an expectation with what's going to result from that. You can throw a stone mm. and the ripples will occur. Mm-hmm. You can't control how big the ripples will be. Yeah how far they will go, how long they will last. I love what you're saying here, Ryan, because also to try to control someone else is unloving. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you how you should react to this thing I created, to this statement I made, Mm -hmm. to this social media post. I'm going to control how you feel about this, how you react to it. Mm -hmm. Well, to love someone is to see them for who they are without Mm. trying to control or manipulate them. Mm. So in a weird way, coming to the situation, attempting to control everything is how to unlove because you're not accepting things for the way they are. Yeah. 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 I I think this patron should keep doing what they feel like they need to do to have the future that they want. But the thing is, is like that future is is an opportunity. It's not a given. And so, um, yeah, continue to do the things you need to do each day. But if you hold on to an expectation, if you, you know, of exactly how the result should be, um, you are really setting yourself because if it happens, you're setting yourself up in in the sense of like, you're going to get that dopamine rush and, oh, look what I did. But then you're going to need something else. Hmm. So so then you're going to need control over something else. And then if you don't get the result that you wanted, now you're going to feel like, um, you're just going to feel bad. You're going to feel like, oh man, I should have done this different and you're going to beat yourself up. Mm-hmm. But if you can take that influence and yes, use your influence how you can each day, but let go of the result. Like that is how, that's sustainable. Holding on holding on to control is not sustainable. That's right. That That quest for the perfect self. I mean, I would just add, the perfect you is the indispensable you the you that can't be replaced. And the indispensable you is the interesting you, the you that shows up as a unique individual distinct from everyone else. And the interesting you is the interested you, the you that is following what fascinates you, the you that is engaging from a place of what brings you joy. And what's the alternative to that? Trying to be interesting according to someone else's definition of what's interesting? independently of what makes you come alive. I mean, your ideas about life and the future are not perfect, but neither is anyone else's. So whose ideas are you going to bet on? Someone else's imperfect standards for your life or your own imperfect standards? Since you're the one that's got to live with you, go with your own imperfect knowledge that you have today of what's interesting to you, what makes you come alive today. But you can't build a life around trying to have flawless predictions about what you're going to like 20, 30, 40 years from now, be in the present. You know who you are today. You know what makes you come alive today. Mm. Go about that in the healthiest way possible. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Speaking of control, one thing that gives me control of my house is something I'm going to feature on our added value segment this week. (laughs) Alabama, we're going to skip our more about less segment for the sake of time because I really want to do a deep dive on this. Here is a preview for next week, though. (laughs) To have and to hoard, exhibition showcases funky and forgotten finds 
of a local collector. Mm. In the museum, it's an article from Boulder Daily, and the corresponding article that goes along with this is from the New York Times. A a Colorado library closed because of meth contamination. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And these two, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, go hand in hand. That's Mm. next week on The Minimalist Podcast. For our added value segment this week, I got two things for you. First thing, the song you hear playing in the background right now is a collaboration between Matt Carney and Mark Sibelia. Mark Sibelia opened up the show and absolutely killed it. And he even sang a cover of Dancing in the Dark. And afterward, Ella goes, Dance in the Dark is my favorite Mark Sibelia song. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, it was it was so good. I mean, yeah. you know when you go to a show and an opener just blows you away, you didn't oh, yeah. know what to expect. Yeah. He was one of those openers. Mark Sibilia and Matt Carney. This song is playing in the background right now. is called Smile. For my other added value this week, so quite often we have different towels or rags or dish towels or washcloths yeah. around the house that we use to clean different things mm-hmm. and Even as a minimalist, at one point, I had like a hodgepodge of different sort of towels, right? Mm -hmm. And one day I said, I'm sick of this. Some of these I don't like. Some of them, they don't work very well. Some of them are linty and they leave lint on the couch. What am I doing with all these things? Mm -hmm. And so I fell down the perfectionist rabbit hole. (laughs) And I said, I am going to find the washcloth that I can use multi-purpose. I throw out all of my other cloths and I dig into the reviews. What are people saying about them? And then I bought 24 of them. Mm. It's a 24-pack. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but if you're watching the video version, this is my black washcloth. And black for a reason, because I use this to clean things all the time. And when I wash them, if you have a bunch of white washcloths, oh, oh yes. they turn yellow pretty quickly. Yeah, and it's like you question, like, is this actually clean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I've never understood the white washcloth. I, I truly have. I, I don't hate on anybody, but I've never well, gotten it. Well, no, like Josh, like, for, so like Mariah and I, we have washcloths and then eventually they get to a point where they got holes in them or they're tattered or whatever it is. So it's like, okay, now that's a rag. That's mm-hmm. a cleaning rag. It's no longer a washcloth. And then, yeah, we've got two separate piles of like the tattered washcloths, which have now become cleaning rags. And then like our washcloth washcloths. But the the black's good, man. Cause yeah, no, none of the stains show up. Um, yeah, you can like clean your feet with them. Yes. Yeah. In fact, that's why I originally bought them because I walk barefoot all the time. There's a nature preserve and then my feet get muddy. And of course, Ella walks barefoot outside all the time. And so we have her, when she comes in the house, first thing she has to do is walk right into the bathroom, clean her feet off. <laughs> and what does she use? Black washcloth. I use these to wash off our tables, our countertops. I have 24 of them. And it is just a perfectionist's cleaning marathon. (laughs) All his cleaning rags match. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put a link to this in the show notes. If you're looking for some new washcloths, you can pick them up from Amazon. Although, you're probably fine without them. You're already complete. You're already perfect without another washcloth. Big thanks to Catherine Morgan Schaffler for joining us today. You can check out her book. It's called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people, 
and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. The clouds are melting like a summer day. Feels like the whole world's trying to turn my way. All of the colors shining in your face. There's a million ways that I still want to say when I see you smile. Stars come shining through When I see you smile Makes me smile too Makes me smile too The birds are singing through our open doors Our children Smile. I'm gonna run and run.